Com podcast. My name is Ben Stone. Today is podcast number 177. It is Friday, July 27th, 2012. And sorry about missing another podcast yesterday. That's twice this week that I flaked out on you folks. Um, I want to give one, you know, another reminder about the Raw, Mar- Raw Milk Freedom Riders and the Lemonade Freedom Day. And their picnic and celebration of freedom of voluntary exchange for the foods of our choice. And that's going to be Saturday, August 18th, 2012 at noon, 3rd Street Southwest between Maryland and Jefferson near the Capitol Reflecting Pool in Washington, D.C. There's going to be a lot of activists there. There's going to be a lot of folks just enjoying the, the, the reflecting pool and enjoying the, the grounds there. And they're going to be sharing food. If you can make it down there to Washington... Bring something to share and be a part of it. And if you can bring a camera, bring a camera and try to record as much as possible. If you can't make it to Washington, D.C. on the on August 18th, uh, you can do something yourself. You can just have a lemonade stand. You can have a cookie stand. You can go down to your public park and set up a stand. But if you're going to do anything like that, like I always say, if you're going to have any kind of activism... You need to realize what the worst-case scenario could be, and you need to be prepared for it. And that generally means, you know, being prepared to suffer the consequences of of action of political action like that. Um, be sure and have someone with a camera. One person to deal with the authorities and one person to deal with just the camera. Okay, before we get into uh, before we get into the podcast today, I wanted to um, I wanted to give a little bit of a a little bit of a thank you. You know, I've been critical of Adam Kokesh sometimes, and I I don't really enjoy his sort of over-the-top, in-your-face type uh, interviews that he does sometimes, and I've I've criticized his dealings with police at times and, and so forth. But recently I was watching a, a, um, a YouTube video with Adam Kokesh, and I was really impressed by it. And I really have to say that you know, Adam is co- is coming along nicely. He really did a good job in this video. I'm going to, uh, I'll put the link to this video on badquaker.com where the it, where today's podcast can be found. And you can watch it there if you haven't already seen it. But um, but I really, uh, I really appreciate that Adam has come along. I'd like to see more like this from Adam. His abilities are amazing if he, uh, if he focuses them in the right direction. Something else I wanted to talk about before I really get going here today too was that I you know and this is this is kind of a, a weird thing to say on a podcast but I've been going over to the Mises Institute uh on you know mises.org for years and years and years and I've really enjoyed the Mises website 
And lately, I've been really disappointed. Um, you know, I'm not seeing new audio articles being put up. And I know the Mises Institute is struggling, or they were, the last I heard, they were struggling financially. And I've kind of, in podcast, I've kind of blamed that on so much of the emphasis of people's donations going to the Ron Paul campaign that the Mises Institute and other good organizations like that have suffered. And that's really unfortunate. Um, but another thing I think is, you know, Jeffrey Tucker is no longer, I think, this is my speculation, and, and it's as much as I, uh, it's as accurate um, it's accurate to my knowledge, so let's put it that way. But Jeffrey Tucker is, uh, is now over at Laissez-Faire Books and is not, uh, you know, doing his magic that he used to do at, Mises, at the Mises Institute. Now, that means some really wonderful things are happening at, La at Laissez-Faire Books, but the Mises Institute is suffering uh, on their website um, at the same time, which is, you know, maybe if we could... If we had another Jeffrey Tucker, you know, we could uh, we could um, maybe clone him and put an, put one at the Mises Institute full time and and uh, and still be able to to do this. But you know, it, it's a shame because I used to get so many good audio articles and so many good uh, uh, lectures and so forth from the Mises Institute. It's really um, it's really sad to go over there and see that the the audio files are not being updated and there's nothing new being recorded and you know uh well anyway that's uh that's just my complaint um i i've uh i've lost most of the contacts with people that i used to chat with over there so i don't really even know what's going on at, at the mises institute i know um i know they're having a um a mises university this week uh, that we're in right now and I would have loved to have gone down there to that, but maybe someday in the future. That's that's not something I can do right now, but uh, maybe someday. I know uh, uh, Robert Higgs is one of the speakers, and he was talking on Facebook about uh, about uh, his uh, his opportunity to uh, to speak down there. And I I really hope the Mises Institute puts up the audio from those uh, from Mises University like they used to do for years because. Uh, I, I, every year I've looked forward to that, and I would hate to, to not hear uh, Bob Higgs speaking and the others uh, as well. But after, after this week, after the, Mises, after the Mises University is over, I'll, um, I'll get a hold of Bob Higgs and see if I can't find the audio files at Mises.com, I'm sorry, Mises.org, then I'll, uh, I'll try to get a hold of Bob and see if maybe he has a copy of his, at least of his speech, um, or, you know, I, it's been over a year since I've had him on the show. I, I wonder if I could talk him into coming back on the show again. That'd be really nice if I could. By the way, I've got, uh, still got a lot of audio from Porkfest that I haven't had the opportunity to put up yet. And, uh, definitely want to get around to that as soon as possible. This week, uh, you know, I haven't quite been able to, to, uh, to have, um, podcast every day, so maybe maybe I can next week I can fill in the gaps with some of the audio from from Porkfest, and uh, maybe I can get that up there. Also, I want I did a thing on the national highway systems about a year ago, and I was really thinking that I want to update that as well. Some of the myths about highway um, about highway building and the highway system and so forth. And uh, among the um, among the Porkfest. Uh, files that I still have. I keep teasing with this file, 
but eventually I really will play it. Uh, the the one gentleman that was the uh, the sovereign citizen. Um, I want to be careful airing that because um, his name was Jay. Because Jay's views um, are <laughs> more than radical, and I need to give like weeks and weeks of disclaimers before I actually play it, so that people, so that my listeners know that I am not advocating um, a sovereign citizen, the sovereign citizen movement, and I'm certainly not advocating that you you know, make your own license plate and put it on your car and try to drive around with it. Or, you know, I'm not advocating you go into court and try to use special magic words to befuzzle a judge and, and hopefully, you know, not get thrown in jail for long periods of time. But at the same time, you know, and I've said this before, when Jay came up to the camp there at Porkfest and began expressing himself, I thought, you know, I really need to record this. And I really need to let people hear it because the passion in in Jay and the desire, you know, his 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 desire is not to do anything crazy or not to do anything evil. And, you know, it's none of those things. His desires for freedom. And he may, you know, maybe he's right on some of his points, and but maybe he's wrong. But whether he's right or wrong, his desire is strictly one that of is a noble desire. He wants to be free. And he's willing to, to risk uh, an amazing amount, you know, his property, his, his horse farm, his, uh, his business. He's willing to risk all these things uh, in his desire to accomplish, you know, freedom, liberty. And uh, whether, I'll let you judge for yourself when you hear him, whether or not, uh, you know, whether his system, whether his uh, methods are something that a person would want to do. I I personally, again, here's my disclaimer, I would not ever uh, attempt to do what he's doing. Um, I, I just, I, I don't see, I, I don't see it as a, as a proper method of fighting the state. But, but to each his own, and you can, you can judge for yourself when you hear his, uh, his, his story. Um, the other thing, I, oh, I know, I was talking a second ago about uh, that I wanted to renew my, uh, I wanted to redo my um, podcast that I did on highway myths. Uh, some of the highway myths that I that I talked about on that podcast was the this this myth that Eisenhower, you know, Eisenhower is considered like the grandfather of all highways in America or whatever. But um, one of the myths was that Eisenhower was so impressed by, now it's according to who tells the story, there's an a, a myth and a B myth, but, you know, so you fill in the blank, A myth or B myth. Eisenhower was so impressed by A or B that he wanted the country crisscrossed with highways so that he could move, uh, so he could uh, have troop movements uh, in case we were attacked, in case the U.S. was attacked. This was one, this is one of the, uh, one of the myths that surrounds the um, the highways. Uh, now his A and his B, his A is because he saw the autobahns in Germany and he saw how what a great thing it was for the Germans to be able to move their troops on the autobahns, and he thought, boy, that's what America needs. That's one of the myths. The other myth about Eisenhower was that when he was a very young soldier, um, uh, under serving under General Pershing. 
he drove uh, the whole length of the Lincoln Highway, which the Lincoln Highway was a private highway built primarily by Carl Fisher, the uh, you know Carl Fisher of the Indianapolis 500, the uh, the founder of the uh, Indianapolis 500. Carl Fisher built a highway system that went coast to coast called the Lincoln Highway, and as a publicity stunt for it, he convinced Blackjack Pershing to take a military squad from one end to the other, and Eisenhower was in that squad. So that's one of the myths surrounding the, the highways, is that Eisenhower was so impressed by the ability to move troops along the Lincoln Highway that he wanted to uh, you know, implement a system like that nationwide. Of course, it's entirely a myth. That was not uh, Eisenhower's reason at all. These were reasons that were brought up after the fact. Um, the real reason that Eisenhower was so, um, you know, was so happy to support the, uh, the highway programs is because basically the highway programs were an extension of the same broken window fallacy that the uh, FDR um, had pushed on people during the 1930s. This idea that, you know, if the government just spends a ton of money building stuff, it almost doesn't matter what the stuff is. If you build enough stuff, then you'll have you know employment and prosperity and all these things like this. Well, Bastiat, uh, you know, as I talk about all the time, um, Bastiat showed in the mid 1800s that this is a fallacy, and it's really backwards thinking to to just dump a bunch of tax money into a program. Who knows, had there never been a highways program, maybe private highways, well, you know, uh, first off, a private, highway, a private highways were abolished in the 1920s when the government socialized all highways. So after that act of socialization in the 1920s, um, there is no chance of private highways anymore. So, you know, you can't even blame it all on FDR. It was already in place when he became president. He just took advantage of the situation. And the same thing with Eisenhower. He just took advantage of it. But the same flaw in thinking that infected the, the progressives of the 1920s and the, and the you know, um, fascists of the 1930s and the, whatever you might want to call them, neo-fascists or neocons or whatever that Eisenhower, however you want to, whatever derogatory phrase you want to paste onto him. But he still believed this fallacy that the government could just take large amounts of money, steal it from taxpayers, and then start spending it on stuff, and it almost didn't matter what was being spent on, this would help the economy. But it doesn't. In the long run, what you're doing is you're stealing productive money from productive people and productive businesses, and you're putting it on a pet project, and then you're looking at the end of the product, of the product and you're trying to make an argument to justify that theft to begin with. And using that same mentality, you know, I've said this before, you could go in and rob a bank and then justify the robbing of the bank and whatever horrible things that took place in the robbing of the bank. Justify that by taking part of the money out, you know, and, and uh, buying the homeless new backpacks or whatever. But that doesn't justify the robbing of the bank to begin with. And w once you grasp in your mind the, this goofy idea that you can do something patently evil, like steal, and then make a good thing happen from it, um, that's a flaw that uh, is, is so fundamental that 
you know, all you have to do is apply this to the Eisenhower situation. So, so Eisenhower, so what you're saying is it's good to rob literally billions of dollars from business and billions of dollars from private individuals because you think this is a good idea. Now, the problem with the whole idea of troop movements, well, if you think about World War II, when the, uh, when the sure, the Germans could move about uh, on their Autobahns, the German soldiers could move about on their Autobahns, but the problem was when the Allies, when the Allied forces invaded, uh, once they cut through and got to the Autobahns, the Autobahns worked as well against the Germans as they had worked for the Germans. So it's kind of a moot point if you say, well, the Autobahns were great for moving the troops to defend Germany. Yeah, but they were also great for the invading troops to move troops to defeat Germany. So, so your, your argument just falls back in on itself at that point. So the idea that Eisenhower, you know, and Eisenhower was no idiot. He may have been confused about economics, but when it comes to military matters, Eisenhower was no idiot. So he wasn't so dumb as to believe this idea that you needed a lot of roads to move around troops because he would have also realized that those, ro that those same roads work in two directions once the enemy troops arrive. Besides that, by the mid-1950s when Eisenhower was, you know, authorizing the building of all these roads, U.S. troop movements were not really ground-based anyway. We had already learned, we already had the aircraft to provide um, large amounts of troop movements by air and, uh, and, of course, by sea. And so with these two methods, you know, moving troops by ground is really slow and inefficient compared to just tossing them all in a plane and flying them at 500 miles an hour. So, so you know, if you, if you really believe that Eisenhower did this specifically for the troop movement reason, then you have to believe either one of two things about Eisenhower. Either he wasn't a very good general, and he was uh, falling into the trap that many really, really bad generals throughout time have, have done, which is, you know, um, they, they look at how the last war was fought, and they try to prepare for the next war. And so this, is, this was the problem in World War I with all the, the um, you know, uh, the, the sp most specifically the French generals were most guilty about this. But it was, there was guilt on the Germans and English and American generals as well. They were attempting to fight a war based on the methods of a hundred years earlier where where walls of men would charge against other men but you can't there's no there's no logical reason to do that if you have you know machine guns nests set up and you can just mow these men down as they charge you this that method worked great when you had you know a few thousand guys with bayonets charging a few thousand guys with bayonets but you put one machine gun into the mix and the whole thing becomes pretty stupid and that's what the, those generals did in World War One, and just massive casualties resulted from it. So yeah, so either either Eisenhower was that dumb that he was following that age-old mistake that other generals have made by attempting to design. You know, it, it was the Cold War at the time, so he was attempting to fight a war according to the last methods of the last war, or else. Um, you know, or else it's a lie. It just wasn't true. That's not the reason why Eisenhower did this. Uh, it has nothing to do with troop movements. It has everything to do with economic reasons, because Eisenhower was on the verge of going up. There was a huge bubble being blown up, being inflated in the economy in the mid-50s, and Eisenhower was in a panic trying to keep 
um, trying to keep industry on top of things so that he could get reelected in the mid-1950s. Now, there you go. That's really what it was about. What do you believe? Eisenhower was an idiot and a bad general? Or he was a, uh, he was a great general, but uh, he was also a sneaky politician? I'm thinking politician. Okay, I'm going to break for a commercial, and then we'll be right back. Folks, have you seen the silver and gold trading cards from Shire Silver? You have to check these out. They're specific weights of real silver or gold laminated inside trading cards, and they're a great way to show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. And now you can buy them using bitcoins or Federal Reserve notes. Folks, you really need to check this out. Go over to Shire Silver, watch the video on the main page, check out the list of merchants that accept silver and gold trading cards, and you can even learn how you can get paid to help spread the word about Shire Silver trading cards. I want to start with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. He said, All this worldly wisdom was once the inamiable heresy of some wise man. Well, I don't know about that. Let's just see what we can come up with here. Now, this is not religion, and this is not New Age gobbledygook. This is, uh, I just want to talk about a song. Don't, don't, uh, don't throw, don't throw this off. Don't think, you know, if, if you're an atheist, if you're a theist, if you're a hardcore Christian, if you're, uh, Jewish, if you're Muslim, don't think I'm trying to pervert religion or don't think I'm trying to push religion on you. Just think about a song. How do you prove or disprove that which cannot be proven nor disproven? So, just think of a thing. Don't even assume. Don't don't assume I'm talking about God, or don't attribute any kind of name or any kind of mystical qualities to what I'm about to say. Just think of a thing that's yet to be described. Think of uh, let's think of a radio signal in the universe. It doesn't have to have a central point of origin. It seems to be everywhere, but more than that, it appears it appears complete everywhere not just through distance and space and matter but through time this radio wave appears from the beginning to the end of the universe whatever that may mean in your own mind and what if it's a signal to call it a radio signal is a failure in description but considering the weakness of language let's let's call it a radio signal for lack of a better thing to call it Imagine a radio signal that exists in all places and all times with a single song playing. Now, the uniqueness of this song is that if you're tuned in correctly, you can hear the whole song from beginning to end all at the same moment. If your radio receiver is tuned correctly, you can hear all parts of the song and have a complete understanding of the song at the same moment, at the same time. The message of the song is being broadcast throughout time, in all places, at all distances, through all matter, instantly receivable in its entirety. It's there in the background, and very much like radio waves, you can walk around from day to day and never know that they're all around us. They're emitting from all kinds of sources. Radio waves come from faraway stars, they come from the rocks under your feet, Radio waves are emitted from the core of the earth itself. Radio waves are all around us constantly, and yet we see and feel no evidence of them. Under the right circumstances and with the right equipment, we can detect 
their existence. But like radio waves, if if we aren't if we aren't tuned just right, the song is just background noise. It it makes no sense. Um, if you think about how many thousands of years the universe has bombarded us with radio waves, and we had, we had no idea they were there. Now in our mind, as we think about this radio wave and as we think of the song, let's imagine that it's a stereo signal. It's it's in two parts. These are two parts that are very similar, yet each contain different information from the other. And I know most people know what I'm talking about when I say that when I'm talking about stereo music and right and left and so forth. But let me just go over what that is really quick in case there's any confusion on it. If you're recording if you're recording some music and you're recording it in stereo, then what you typically would want to do is you want to take your lead vocal, your main vocal, and you want to split that equally so that the entire uh, the entire body of information, all of the all of the sound of the lead vocal, is equally distributed to both the right and the left channel. And uh, let's say you have some some backup singers to your lead vocal. Well, you might want to uh, put some of them with more of an emphasis to the right, and some of them with more of an emphasis to the left. Or you might want to put all of the background singers to one side, let's say to the left, but but put them say put them say sixty percent stronger on the right or or let's say on the left, put them sixty percent stronger on the left than they are on the right. So they actually appear on both the right and the left, but they appear to the left a little stronger than to the right. Now let's say let's say you have musical instruments in this recording and so let's say you have drums and guitar and and maybe a bass guitar and maybe a piano or whatever well with each instrument you would decide ahead of time if you wanted it to be more central to the sound or if you want it more to the right or more to the left and you can sometimes you can um back back in the 70s when when recording artists were really playing around with stereo so, stereo sounds a lot and it was a big thing to have a set of headphones and listening to listen to specific songs uh, on headphones to hear the 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 magical way that they made the song uh, move through your mind. Um, in those days, musicians experimented a lot, and they would sometimes they would move the sound. So, for example, they would start off with the guitar all the way to the right. And, and have the guitar completely to the right, and then at certain moments they would shift it to the left. So if you're hearing it on headphones, it would seem like the guitar just moved from one side of your head to the other side of your head. But if you were listening to it out in a room without headphones, it seemed like the person holding the guitar had walked from one side of the stage to the other side of the stage. So it gave this, uh, it gave this impression in your mind. And you didn't necessarily have to think out all the aspects of it to to get what they were doing with the uh, with the little games that they were playing with the with the stereo sound but as you understand how to record stereo music you can play around with these things and you can actually come up with a more natural sounding recording by doing this because the the ears themselves um, your right and your left ear uh, each uh, receive a slightly different signal, and human beings, uh, we're assuming that you have hearing in both ears and you don't have damaged hearing or something like this. We walk around every day 
hearing everything in stereo because uh, the distance, just that short distance from the right side of your head to the left side of your head creates enough of a variation in sound so that we hear everything in stereo. So we hear a bird in a tree and we can tell immediately if it's more to the right or more to the left or if it's over our heads or if it's out in front of us. We, this is the reason why we have two eyes. We see in stereo as well. A right eye or a left eye might, might be dominant, but both eyes um, produce a, an image, and your brain takes the image of both those eyes and puts them together and determines how far away things are and how bright things are and how dull things are and the different color variations. And all these things are done instantaneously in the brain without you ever thinking about it, whether we're talking about through your ears or through your eyes. This stereo experience happens. So when you're recording something in stereo, you can keep this in mind and uh, you can put part of, the, part of the, um, the message, so to speak, part of the music on one side, part of the music to the other side, some of it shared between both sides and to different varying degrees. Maybe, maybe you want the drums completely in the center, and maybe you want part of the, but maybe you want part of the drums to one side. So maybe you want the cymbals, you know, forty percent stronger on one side than the other side. But you want the toms on the drums forty percent stronger on the other side than than the cymbals. You can move these things around and give a different uh, a different feel to the music, allowing each ear to hear a slightly different message. Uh, and then your brain puts these together, and it makes it far more interesting to listen to than if you're listening to just flat uh, mono music like was recorded, say, back in the 1930s. But again, in order to, in order to, receive, um, in order to receive this universal song, your, both, both your right and left receivers, both receivers, because stereophonic sound relies upon two channels. And so to transmit those two channels and then receive those two channels, you need two separate receivers receiving on two separate channels. Now, most devices nowadays that we listen to on the radio, uh, the FM radios that have you know stereo sound like that, you don't actually see two separate receivers. It's all built into the machine. But you still have to have two separate receivers to hear both halves of the message. So thinking of this universal song, if you only have one receiver... And even if it's only very slightly off, you won't receive the whole message. Parts will be missing. Parts will be jumbled. Parts will be garbled. You'll, it's really easy to misunderstand what's being said. Uh, I think of rock and roll lyrics back in the 60s when very few people had FM radios and it was all being transmitted in AM. And it was really, it was really confusing to try to figure out lyrics that are being transmitted on an AM that were recorded stereophonically. It, it was, it, it's really easy to misunderstand the lyrics. And even during the 70s, when, um, when you know, the, the equipment wasn't quite as good as it is today, even if you owned the album, sometimes it was difficult to figure out lyrics because the, you know, the message wasn't exactly... The, the machinery wasn't exactly perfect, so the, mes so the message was garbled to a certain extent, or, or it was easy to misunderstand the message. So to receive all the information so that your mind can assemble the whole song, you must have both the stereo receivers and they must be set correctly.
So this song goes out throughout the universe, through all space, through time, through matter, in this stereo transmission. But again, without the receiving equipment, you can't tell it's there. Without the proper settings, even with the equipment, it's just noise. So now let's, let's shift our thoughts a bit. Let's think about an ant colony. The colony relies on information that individual ants gather. But no ant understands the completeness of the colony. The colony functions as one entity, analyzing the information and making decisions, all the while no one ant ever knows that there is a colony. Picture in your mind how a school of fish swims, the dance that they perform, or perhaps think of a large flock of birds, how they move as one. You know, I remember one time watching a football game, a high school football game, and it was uh, starting to get at that moment late in the evening where the sun had already gone down, but it was still somewhat light, just in the twilight, and uh, and there were and there was a huge flock of swallows that came swooping in to the area where the where all these parents and all these kids were watching this football game, and everybody's eyes were fixed on the football game, but I was watching this flock of of um, of swallows, and I was watching how they how they reacted to the mosquitoes that were coming up out of the grass and feeding on the parents and the kids. I was more fascinated by watching this flock of birds than I was by actually watching the football game. But thinking of how a group like that moves and behaves, humans in in humans we have. We have individual thinking, individual behavior, but when we gather in large gatherings, a whole different thing occurs. If you think about a rock concert or a big religious ceremony or a political gathering, anytime people come together as one, as one entity, there's sort of a, a very different experience takes place. Now, I've heard a lot of people try and explain this. But I've never really heard anyone do it justice, and I'm sure I won't in my explanation of it either. Think about, think about an old lady watching TV, sitting alone in her, in her home, watching a televangelist on TV. She's filled with emotion. She's filled with, with all, of the, all of the emotions that, that the congregation on TV is, feeling, is feeling. The, the thing is, though, Maybe this is a rerun from a year ago. She's feeling all the group feelings from watching this televangelist and watching the group on TV, and yet she's watching a rerun from a year ago. She's experienced something. She's experiencing something from a different time and a different place with people she probably doesn't even know in a place she's probably never even been, and yet. Deep inside, she hears a song. Deep inside, something's happening that she can't even describe. Now, some might call this mass hypnotism, or some might have other explanations for how, for what this is that happens when a group gets together. But something begins to take over when a group of human beings assembles. Assuming that you have a commonness within this group, feelings and emotions can peak. Thoughts can get confusing, and the mind doesn't function the same as when you're by yourself. A kind of euphoria sets in. This, this, um, 
Uh, it's, it's not right just to call it a herd feeling because it's far greater than that. Really powerful emotions can, can be set into action. Now, in contrast to that, separate yourself and remove from your mind by prayer or meditation or even just by rest, remove from your mind all the clutter and all the thoughts of other people and other things and stuff and all that all those things that weigh your mind down. Just be alone for a while, and a whole different experience takes place. Again, it can be a type of euphoria. Just being, for me, being way out in the desert by myself, where I can't see any indication of any other human being, and being out there for days. And after a few days, it, there's a thing that begins to happen in your mind. Now, some people fear this feeling. Some people... Uh, will do anything to avoid that that extreme loneliness and extreme emotion that comes in. But if you if you learn to embrace it, and you just sit quietly and you block out of your mind all of the functioning of humanity and all of the all of the luggage we carry with us on a day to day basis, just sit there quietly by yourself and clear your mind. A a, a type of euphoria can develop that's very, very different from the one you felt in the crowd. Very different from what the elderly lady feels when she's watching her televangelist. But yet, it's very similar. Being deeply alone and embracing that has a lot in common with being fully embraced into a crowd and the euphoria that happens in a rock concert or a religious ceremony. I'm going to break for for our break, and I'll be right back. And when I get back, we're going to pick back up on this. Folks, I want to talk to you about survival gear bags. Survival gear bags is about more than just great gear bags and survival kits. Check out their website by clicking the banner at badquaker.com. Survival gear bags has everything from wise food storage products to tactical equipment to camping supplies to clothing and rain gear to hydration and purification systems to books and DVDs. Plus, Survival Gear Bags is known for its service, and it's owned and operated by people who understand and adhere to the zero aggression principle. So get over to Survival Gear Bags and get the stuff you need. What does freedom mean? Tune in to LRN.FM to find out. LRN.FM is the Liberty Radio Network, a collection of live talk radio and podcasts, all coming from a principled pro-liberty perspective. LRN.FM show hosts aren't left, right, or conspiracy kooks. You can tune in 24-7 to LRN.FM via your phone, computer, satellite, and more. Listen free anytime at LRN.FM. That's LRN.FM. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. Uh, now, a minute ago I quoted Henry David Thoreau. Uh, I want to do that again. Any fool can make a rule, and any fool will mind it. On a rare occasion, you can be in a large crowd and you can be experiencing what I was describing, this mutualness, this togetherness. And on a rare occasion, you can also be in that crowd and realize that you're entirely alone. You're entirely a, an individual, entirely at peace with yourself, even when surrounded by maybe hundreds or thousands of people. There's this weird harmonic balance that can take place. It's rare. But it happens. Now, considering what 
what takes place when a person is really in tune with a crowd and considering what takes place when a person is really in tune with with being by themselves let me ask what if what if an individual can be very very quiet and what if they listen and be very still and what if we can what if we can hear little pieces of that song if we're very careful what if we can perceive little chunks of that song? Maybe little pieces that maybe are important to us at that time, but, but we can never quite hear the whole thing, ever. Because, the, because we only hear the part that really applies to us right now, and we can only hear that one-sidedly. Only, well, let's consider it this way. Think about this. When you're pregnant, or if you have a loved one that's pregnant, you start to see pregnant people everywhere. The numbers of pregnant people haven't changed. But all of a sudden you start to notice them. They were there all along, but suddenly you're tuned in and you can see them. Baby product advertisements pop up on television that you never noticed before. Suddenly there's commercials for, you know, all kinds of things that you never even thought about. Baby life insurance, uh, you know, all kinds of baby products. You never noticed any of these things before. But when a couple, when, when there's a pregnancy, suddenly you start seeing this stuff all around you. So what if this song that I'm talking about is like that? The more sensitive you become to the song, the more of the song you can hear. And the more sensitive you become to the song, the more the song applies directly to whatever it is you're going through in your life at that time. But aspects of this song that don't apply to you or don't apply to your situation are far more difficult to hear. They might be there in the background, but you just don't really pick up on them so much. This is a part of the stereo characteristics of this song. You're only picking up part of it part of one side of the stereo signal. You can never, as an individual, hear the other side of the stereo signal. No one individual can ever hear the whole signal. You can only, you only have the receiver for one side of the signal. And you can only hear what's applicable to you at that time. The other receiver can only be tuned in by a group, by, by the gathering, by people together. The individual can hear part of the main message and part of the individual message. And the group can hear part of the main message and part of the group message. But the individual can never hear the whole song. And the group can never hear the whole song. Now, let's set aside any notions of religion or mysticism and let's just consider some practical ways of looking at this. No holy objects, no power crystals, no magical symbols. No, no incantations, no, no incense, no, none of that. Just, let's just think about this practically. How do we tune these receivers so that we can hear this song? In addition to just stopping and listening for it, one thing is to take away the inf interference that causes us to not be able to hear it. This applies to both the individual and the group. The side noise must be removed. Then both the individual and the group must actually actively listen for it. 
So now I'm this far into this, and I'm finally going to try to make a point. I've theorized before that the original falling away of humankind from our creator or from, from our proper place in the universe, that happened when humans adopted the religious belief that some humans can make laws and other humans have to obey those laws. When humans adopted this unnatural faith in mankind and abandoned the natural laws that are embedded in our beings, their receivers became jammed and their ability to hear this song became perverted. Think about other animals for a moment. Consider some of the smarter animals. There, there are animals that have a functional brain that's comparable to a small human child. Yet, they know their laws instinctually. All the while, even the young human child is conflicted in understanding right and wrong. They have a fairly good knowledge of it, but there's still confliction in the child's mind. And the natural laws that they were born with can be confusing to a child, to a human child. Now, similar animals don't seem to face this confusion. They know their place. They know their laws. They seem to have been adapted uh, to, to stay within the laws that are natural to them. But humankind has adopted an unnatural direction in our development. Look at the planet around us. Consider the capability of man to, in a single day, launch enough weaponry to completely wipe out our species. Consider these false, unnatural entities that we've created and that humans now serve blindly. Governments and corporations, faceless, faceless beings that humans obey without question. Creatures that live only in our mind. Creatures living in the mind of mankind, yet they have the power to alter the genetic structure of life and then loose it on the planet. Or, or these creatures have the ability to give a command and unleash death from the sky, and humans blindly obey. This is unnatural behavior, and unnatural behavior is detrimental to any species. It's understandable that human adults are conflicted and confused. When we, try to, when we try to think about natural law, we try to detect and understand natural law. You know, we spend our whole lives being indoctrinated by the evil lies of the state. But young children are not immune to this illness of statism. Why is that? Why? Why, why is it that children having had very little or no indoctrination of the state, can still be confused and still tend toward accepting the ideas of the state. It's, it's because the stereo signal is fouled. To receive the entire message, both receivers must be tuned. There's the individual receiver and the group receiver. Both must be tuned, and we must be both separate and together, remember how I was talking about being in a crowd and yet realizing that you're entirely an individual within that crowd? So then what's interfering with this signal? Well, it's what I've called before. It's what I've called sin. Now, stick with me. Don't panic. I didn't, use, I didn't just use a bad word that's going to chase people away. 
It's what I've called sin. It's mankind making unto himself law. It's mankind placing the mantle of lawgiver upon mankind. The mantle of God. When mankind takes the mantle of lawgiver, the mantle of God, and places it upon himself, places that mantle upon mankind, he sets himself above nature. He sets his, himself above nature's laws, and he makes himself a deity. Mankind individually rising up as a lawgiver to other humans, or mankind individual, individually raising up other humans as lawgiver. Collectively, mankind exalts mankind as a god. This is violating natural law. Violating that which has made us what we are. That, and, ta and, and taking it on ourselves to make a new nature with mankind as the creator. This is sin. Sin on, an, sin on an individual basis is aggression upon another human being. But sin on a collective basis is the belief that it's okay for some humans to aggress on some humans if it's done in the name of the state. The state, that beast that humans have created in their minds to justify their actions. The existence of that beast interferes with our group receiver and prevents collective humanity from hearing this song of the universe. So then, what if the individual can clarify, can tune in their receiver to simply, by simply adhering to the zero aggression principle? Well, you can hear more of the song, but you can't hear the whole song. You can't hear the whole thing. But what happens when more people begin to tune in to the zero aggression principle? More of the song comes to light. More understanding develops among us. Clarity begins to develop. But when the whole species rejects the unnatural confusion, clarity begins to arrive to the species. Hearing the song is like that. You can't, you can't hear it until you begin to hear it. Uh, but once you've begun to hear it, you can't unhear it. Let me end this section of the podcast with another Henry David Thoreau quote. I hardly accept the motto that Government is best which governs least, and I should like to see it acted up more rapidly and systematically. Carried out, it finally amounts to this, which I also believe, that government is best which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government which they will have. Government is at its best but an expedient. But most governments are usually, and all governments are sometimes, inexpedient. So then now I'm faced with a dilemma. I finished too quick. I got through my notes too quickly. And I didn't really wrap it up. I didn't really bring it to an end because I didn't really I didn't really put the final cap on this that says this is how we get from here to there. This is how this is how this is done. And there's a reason for that because we can't make it happen. The only thing we can do is work among ourselves, raise our own children the best we can,
seek to share knowledge of the zero aggression principle with other humans. But we cannot force this upon humanity. The moment that we begin to use, use legislation or use the power of government in any way to create this zero aggression principle on a, on a group-wide basis, the moment that we do that, we've eliminated the possibility of the zero aggression principle. All we can do is educate to maintain ourselves in the right direction of trying to constantly adhere to the zero aggression principle, use our lives as an expression of that. You know, I've talked before about the difference between the way I was raised as a Baptist and how I feel now as a Quaker, and how the one thing that stood out was, in, in the terminology, a testimony. To the Baptist, a testimony is to stand up during a service and, te and use words and explain how they feel about, about this or that or, or things, events that are going on in their lives and how it's affected them and so forth. It's all about words. But to the Quaker, a testimony is not about words. It's about living your life. And that's, what that's really the thing with the zero aggression principle. It's how we live our life. It's not just the words that we speak. It's not, you know, I, uh, this, I heard someone saying here recently that uh, talking about libertarians that were uncomfortable with other libertarians that wanted to be armed all the time. Well, uh, if they're not aggressing against you, it's none of your business. And you have, to, you have to seek in your own mind constantly how to catch those things like that, how, how you're potentially uh, thinking in a direction that is attempting to put your will on other people or, or the way you want them to behave when, in fact, they're not aggressing on anyone. It doesn't matter if they're carrying a gun or a daisy in their pocket. As long as they're not aggressing on you, it's none of your business. It's their property. It's not your property. And if they're not a threat to you, how, you say, well, they have a gun, they're a threat. No, that's not at all the case. They could have a rock. A rock can kill you just as dead as a gun. But the, but the threat is not in the object. The inanimate object is not the threat. The threat only happens if there's a person who will aggress. And if there's no person to aggress, there's no threat. It doesn't matter what object is there. So we constantly have to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. You know, I've talked before about uh, in the, the biblical story of the, uh, of the ceremonies of the tabernacle, it was the, there was a cleansing process after the priests had, had made the slaughter of the sacrifice and they had roasted the meat in the, uh, on the fires of the, of the altar. Then they walked over to this huge bronze bowl that the bottom of it was polished like a mirror and they washed all they washed their face and they washed their beards and they washed their hands and they washed themselves clean of all the blood of the sacrifice and of all the you know the soot that got in their face from from burning the meat and so forth like this and they looked in their at their image in the bottom of this big bowl that they were washing in and they were able to self-examine and see for themselves if they were prepared to go on into the tabernacle because they couldn't risk going in there if they weren't you know, clean and prepared to go in there. And this is something that, that libertarians need to do all the time, is constantly 
self-examine, look in that mirror and see if we are indeed uh, walking the life that we're talking, see if we really um, are matching up to the, to the things that we're saying. And if we are, then in a very real sense, our job is done. The only thing we have to do is let this evil governmental system, the state with all its tentacles and corporations and banks and media, we just have to let it follow its course. And then we have to pick up the pieces after it, after it collapses. Folks, for more on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to badquaker.com. And thank you very much for listening to me. Anarchy.